Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan, and I'm glad to see you all today. Sherry, when you called us old, did that, you looked about three or four rows back. Did it start there, or was it the front row, too? Because that's where I was. Okay, it was in the front. Sherry called us all old this morning. All right, well, we are going to be in a few different passages of Scripture this morning. The title of the sermon is super obvious. Uh, Over the next five weeks, we're looking at some interesting questions that middle schoolers have asked. Um, In 15 years ago, when I got into pastoral ministry as a vocation, um, I was working as a youth pastor in Indianapolis. And at the time, uh, I wanted to spend my time with the high schoolers, the middle schoolers. I was like, I'm not sure about this crowd. But now, at this point in life, you know, eight years into being here, eight plus years, I've been working with seventh and eighth graders through our confirmation class for that whole time. And now over the past couple years, uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time hands-on with our youth group, middle school youth group. Middle schoolers are fun. If you haven't had the experience recently, seriously, find a middle schooler and just enjoy them because they are a load of fun. They're still kids. And so they don't mind getting messy and playing like kid games. They still have a little bit of that kid innocence that's so wonderful. But they ask really good questions. And they're not as uh, clean as maybe we'd ask them in the sense of they don't have them smoothed out. And, you know, they're really rough questions sometimes in the sense of they, they're longer than they need to be or they're not quite as specific as they need to be, but they're getting at something. But they also, or this is where I guess we are old, they don't have the filters that we do. So they don't try and filter out the stuff. Oh, I shouldn't ask this kind of question. No, they just ask it. Middle schoolers are so much fun. I love hanging out with them. So we're going to do five weeks of questions middle schoolers ask in confirmation. Our middle schoolers right now are, no, they're not taking sermon notes this week. They have the week off, but they're usually taking sermon notes when we're doing confirmation. One of the last questions on most of the sermon notes is, what's one question you would ask the pastor about this? Uh, We also have a question jar in our confirmation class. So I have years of questions that middle schoolers have asked. Some are as simple as, uh, this was in the question jar last year, and it took me a couple weeks before I pulled it out and realized it was in there. Can I have a drink of water? Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What's the obvious answer? But more often, there are questions like, uh, how do I deal with uh, being Christ-like when people around me aren't? Or uh, how, what do I do when it seems like God's taking forever to answer prayer? How can I be persistent in prayer? What if God doesn't answer that prayer? Or or how do I deal with that? Uh, Why hasn't Jesus returned? And what's he going to do when he comes? So we'll look into questions like that, but this week we're going to look at what I think is probably one of the most interesting I've gotten, and it, it comes up regularly, which is, why doesn't God just show everyone he exists super obviously so that they'll believe in him sooner so that he can make the new heaven and earth sooner? So there's a lot there, and we're only going to cover the first half because the last half can be wrapped up in our last week a little bit. But a lot of people have asked this kind of question, why doesn't God just make it super obvious fireworks in the sky, mass text right now to you, I exist, here's the message you need. Why doesn't God just do that? So if I were answering this to a middle schooler, I'll give you the short how I would respond to it, and then we'll dig in a little bit more. How I would respond to this is asking two questions, and I have responded to this with middle schoolers. I would ask, how do you expect God to communicate? What are your expectations? So why doesn't God just uh, show himself super obviously? Well, what's your expectation? What's super obvious and what's a good method of communication for God to use to communicate his existence? Second thing I would ask is, what type of evidence would be sufficient for belief? How obvious is obvious? 
and what are the things you've already assumed before that that might counteract that obviousness? Those kinds of questions. The really simple point I think we should take away this morning is if you seek, seek God, you'll find him. Right now, even this morning, I don't know if you realize this, but God is speaking. We're going to look at a bunch of different scriptures. We're going to go to Acts 17 here if you want to find that right away. Um, Acts 17, God is speaking through Acts 17 to you right this morning even. We're going to look at Luke 16. God is speaking this morning through his word. Are you listening is really the key question. So we're going to go to the, the first text today. Uh, which is Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. It will come up on the screen for you. And here Paul has been talking to a bunch of philosophers in Athens in the Areopagus. They stand around and talk about philosophical ideas all day long and truth and life and those sorts of things. And they have a whole bunch of gods around them, statues of gods, and they have the statue to the unknown god. And Paul is uh, annoyed at this or upset uh, that he's troubled, is what it says, distressed. And so he, he uses that as his way to enter into conversation with them. In verses 24 and 25, he says, I can, I can tell you who this God is. He said, for the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. It's interesting, their assumption there. Uh, is that God exists, and that's our assumption this morning as well. We're assuming God exists, but we'll talk a little bit more about some of the evidence of that in a moment. But what Paul points out here that's really useful for us to remember is that God is outside the system. God is not created. God is not part of his creation. God created us. We have a beginning. God didn't. God is without beginning or end. God is not part of his creation. He's something outside of that system who has created and entered into that system. But it's important to recognize that both here and in our daily life, we often come to the question of God's existence and God's character and those sorts of things uh, and belief with what are called presuppositions. Uh, that is, assumptions that we already bring to the table that we haven't checked in many cases. We assume this is the way the world works, that's our worldview, and we haven't actually thought through sometimes those uh, presuppositions, the assumptions that we bring in advance. One interesting way this plays out uh, that sometimes we encounter and sometimes we don't is when people try and pit science and religion against each other and they'll bring up something they shouldn't. They're not at war, by the way, uh, but they'll bring up like the God of the gaps uh, theory. If you've ever heard of this, that that in the past people relied on all these gods like in Athens because they couldn't explain tides and hurricanes and floods. And as we we understand those things more, we need God less and less to explain the things we don't understand. So God is just a stand in for things we don't understand. There's a lot of presupposition there and a lot of assumption, and it doesn't actually answer all the questions. But we often approach questions of belief, whether as believers or people who don't believe in God, with those presuppositions. And so what we end up doing, I'll get my Twinkies out of the way here, we'll come back to those, um, is we end up doing, it's middle school, so we can do some, some stuff, right, with, uh, with some object lessons here. We end up taking our facts, which are like this, and we want the facts of truth to go to their natural and logical conclusion. But what a presupposition does is it says, here's the facts, but I actually want it to make spaghetti. And so we take it and we put our presuppositions in here, and what are we going to do? I'm going to set it to spaghetti setting, or there's the triple spaghetti setting. And we push it through, and we say, this is what I want my facts to become rather than letting them go to their natural 
conclusion. That's what our presuppositions do, and we can all have them. We, can all, we all do have presuppositions. We need to make sure that we've checked our presuppositions. I'll leave that there in case somebody wants spaghetti later. But the question becomes, are we seeking the truth? Are we seeking to bolster our own already made conclusions? When it comes to the facts of how the world works and the evidence around us, are we seeking to manufacture the truth into what we want or where the truth actually takes us? Truth should always overrule or are any uh, conclusions we, uh, excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong sentence. Truth should always overrule our presuppositions and expectations. The truth should always win out and produce a truthful worldview. Rather than trying to just jam through our presuppositions, we need to check those things and make sure we are following the truth. So that brings us to how I would answer this in the first place, because presuppositions play into this. If we're talking about how, why doesn't God just make himself super obvious, how do we expect God to communicate his existence, I think is an important question. How do you expect God to communicate? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. And we should recognize part of the presupposition of that question is if God is God and we're not, he's the communicator, we're not. So they put a bunch of statues here in Athens, and that's a really great way to try and control what you want God to do and how you want to function in front of God. I can control that statue. I can put it where I want to put it. That's not how God works. God's not contained in that. Paul points that out. If God's going to communicate, which God does regularly, he wills it to happen. That's the only reason it happened. We only know God at all because he has willed it. If he didn't want us to know him, he'd make it so we couldn't know him. But he wants us to know him. He wills it. He shares freely who he is. If he didn't want us to know him, he wouldn't share it. But he shares. It's at his, uh, his initiation his desire, his sharing, his generosity, and he gives us the ability to even understand. He gives us life and breath, Paul points out. Without God creating us and making us sort of rational, logical creatures that can understand uh, and, and live in a non-chaotic world, a world ordered by him, we would not have the ability to understand. Even the words I'm saying right now, if God weren't behind our minds and these words, if it were just chaos, we shouldn't even be trusting our own minds to interpret this. But because God has freely given us that ability, all of a sudden, we know that he's the one who initiates and gives us the communication. And the philosophers in Athens, what were they expecting? They were expecting God to communicate through a statue in some way. What did they get? An apostle. It was an unexpected way for God to communicate to them. God communicates, though. We need to be on the lookout and not just live in our presuppositions about how he's going to do that. But let's move on to the, the idea of the miracle part of it. Why doesn't God just produce a miracle that would convince us? Now, there actually are a lot of New Testament passages that we could go to. Uh, we're going to go to Acts 13.58. It'll be on the screen if you don't want to, excuse me, Matthew 13.58. We were already in Acts. Matthew 13.58. It'll be on the screen if you don't want to find that. But we're going to go to Luke 16 next if you're flipping around. Uh, Jesus has been in Nazareth in his hometown. His own people, uh, his own hometown has not really accepted that he uh, can do these miraculous things. He can barely do any healing or exorcism. Uh, and he talks about how a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And then at the very end, Matthew points out, and he did not 
he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And this is something, a really important lesson was imparted to me years ago that I think we need to recognize. Miracles don't produce lasting faith. Miracles don't produce lasting faith. I was inspired this week uh, thinking through that uh, and read uh, an article about the guy that tried the Twinkie diet years ago. He lost 27 pounds in two months. And as I poured a bowl of booberry and frankenberry mixed together this week, Stephanie said, please don't try that diet, because I was like, that sounds really fun to me. But um, imagine living off a diet of just Twinkies. What's going to happen? You can lose weight, right? But you're not going to be really well nourished by living off a diet of this. You're going to need more, and you're going to need more and more often. Would you like a Twinkie in the front row? This is why you should sit closer. Here. Try again. There you go. You're not going to be very healthy. Even when Jesus feeds the 4,000, not the 5,000, later when he feeds the 4,000, that's pretty close to this passage we read, he's just done something miraculous, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and say, hey, show us a sign. I mean, it's constant. Miracles don't produce lasting faith because we're always going to want another and another and another and another in order to show us something bigger, show us something greater. Miracles don't produce lasting faith. If that's all our faith is invested in, it's not invested in the fullness of what God is going to do. And you can think of it this way. Miracles that Jesus does are signs. And this morning as we drove in, I don't know if you had trouble getting through the marathon traffic or the half marathon traffic. Yeah, I mean, I, I came just early enough that I was in the traffic flow, but I didn't get stopped. But, but think to yourself, whenever you've been outside of Lincoln and you've driven back into Lincoln, we're thinking of signs, have you ever had to, when you see the city of Lincoln city limit sign, have you ever had to kind of stop and meander around tent cities and people trying to build houses next to that sign? No. Do you know why? Because the sign isn't the destination. The sign tells you the destination is still ahead. Nobody's building uh, cities by exits to little towns around Nebraska because they haven't hit the town. That's just a sign that points you. Jesus, when he heals, those are signs pointing to something else. The miraculous signs are pointing to God's greater hope, the new heaven, the new earth, the kingdom of God. And if we, our faith is in the miracle, we don't have a very deep faith. We're missing the point. Miracles don't produce lasting faith. Let's go to Luke 16, uh, 19 through 31, because this is a great example of where Jesus illustrates this. The rich man and Lazarus. It says, Jesus tells this parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he, was in, he was in where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 
But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You can see that they had the evidence that they needed. Lazarus must have had it, even in his uh, hard state in life and his uncleanness. The rich man... He also had the evidence that he needed. He had what he needed to believe, but he didn't. He didn't choose that in his life. There's been uh, a claim, Carl Sagan is famous for making the claim, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So the existence of God seems like an extraordinary claim. Miracles seem like an extraordinary claim. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Interestingly, Um, It's a fairly useless phrase in that way. Even Carl Sagan himself tempered it by saying, by extraordinary evidence, I mean a whole lot of it. So it's it's kind of a useless phrase because extraordinary claims don't need extraordinary evidence. They just need enough evidence. That's what that means. And so I want to say a couple things about truth claims, and we'll, we'll see a little bit more about this here in a moment. But truth claims, when it comes to this idea of the existence of God and why doesn't he do something big, There's a truth claim there. Truth claims need a couple of things, among others. They need good evidence. If something's true, we just need quality evidence to tell us that it's true. Lazarus, the rich man, his brothers, all of them have what they need. They have the law and the prophets. And interesting, included within the law and the prophets, and you see some fulfilled testimony as part of the prophecy, you have a history of God's work that's included within that, too. It's interesting that whenever uh, in Israel they were trying to tell the story of God's faithfulness, they told the story of God's work in history. That's what tied them to the goodness of God and his faithfulness and his work. And the, the, the fact that they needed the law and the prophets. They always told the story. We should take a heart in that in our own testimony to remember God's faithfulness and goodness to us in that same way. But truth claims need good evidence. What kind of evidence do we have at our disposal to consider the existence of God? I'm going to bring up just a few categories. And we won't dwell on any of them very long, but just to kind of give us an idea. Again, if I were answering this to a middle schooler, we have natural revelation is one of the categories that we have. Psalm 19.1, for instance, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Paul in Acts Acts 17 said that God's the one who gave us all that we have. It's on display for us to see. Natural revelation is basically seeing the order around us in the world and seeing that there's something there that at least points to the direction of design in some way, shape, or form. Now, natural revelation alone is not sufficient. It can tell us a lot. It can also bring us to the wrong conclusion if we're not careful. We also have logical arguments that go along with natural revelation that we can use. I, again, won't go over these 
uh, particularly, but uh, the, the kind of the top three that people pick out, big words, the teleological argument, the cosmological, specifically usually the column cosmological argument, and the moral argument for the existence of God. That is, the first one, teleological, but there's a design. And if there's a design, there must be a designer following that philosophical uh, and logical thought. The cosmological argument that the world had a beginning, thus there must be somebody who put it together. The moral argument, which I find the most compelling uh, almost on its own, if there's a law, there must be a lawgiver. That is, if there's right and wrong, and those are objectively right or wrong, there's something outside of the system that has to make those objectively right or wrong. Otherwise, everything we do in life is just options. We can't really say they're right or wrong. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, um, Mere Christianity, I think both chapters three and four go over this pretty well. If you want a good read on that, I was trying to find my copy since we're renovating the office. It's in a stack. No idea what page it is, but I found a good quote from Mere Christianity. Anyways, that outlines this. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll be complaining it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. We know that there's right and wrong. Again, these all don't stand on their own. We'll see something more of that in a moment. Truth claims require good evidence. One thing we do have on our side is special revelation. That is the word of God, scripture. Very specific from God. It's historically verifiable and historically useful. I find this one of the most interesting and compelling things about scripture itself. Uh, that it can be used to find things in the ancient world that have already been found, and it can be used to help find things that we have not yet found in the ancient world. The places it mentions are real, the people it mentions are real, the stuff it mentions actually happened in history. You can find it on a map. Compare that, just by contrast, to many of the other religious systems and books out there. If you try and read the Quran, it doesn't get, it's timeless. It doesn't get connected to any specific point in time. Hindu documents don't get connected at any point in time. Book of Mormon is a great example where you can look at, it's all taking place in Central America, and the maps in the front of the book are actually from upstate New York and have nothing to do with Central America because none of those places exist in Central America that it mentions. The Bible has verifiable lots and lots and lots of verifiable information in it, which makes you wonder then why the stuff that we sometimes question is even in there in some cases. That is to say, why would it be in there? Because sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes it seems extraordinary. But if they were telling us the truth on other things, why would they lie about those things? What's the incentive? So we can ask some pretty important questions about that. Most especially, though, in the category special revelation, we have Jesus himself as the greatest evidence of God, somebody who really existed. And sometimes people will say, and, and the Bible's going to tell us an awful lot about him and his story, and sometimes people will say, well, the Bible's just biased. Well, by making the con that comment, you're biased as well. So we have to ask the question about our presuppositions, right? What are our presuppositions? What are our assumptions about that? Can we weigh this out and see if everything else is true? Why would we doubt the stuff about Jesus then? But we heard from Colossians this morning, Colossians 1, and I'll just read 19 and 20. We see in Jesus Christ evidence of God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him 
and through him to reconcile, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's given us a variety of ways to get at his existence. And we need good evidence. We need quality evidence for his existence. But the other thing that we need, truth claims don't just require good evidence, they require sufficient. The idea of extraordinary, it's just that we have enough of it. A long enough list to say, okay, this is plausible. And I'm going to suggest that you get that from the sources I've been talking about. And you can add to that, certainly. But a good way to say the sufficient evidence part, G.K. Chesterton said it well. He said, if I'm asked as a purely intellectual question why I believe in Christianity, I can only answer for the same reason that an intelligent agnostic disbelieves in Christianity. I believe in it quite rationally, rationally upon the evidence. But the evidence, in my case, as in that of an intelligent agnostic, is not really in this or that alleged demonstration. It is in an enormous accumulation of small but unanimous facts. We need good and sufficient evidence if there are truth claims. We can have big questions about God, God's existence, God's character. I know some people really carry the burden of not knowing if God exists, and that's a heavy burden for some people. Uh, that's not been one of my burdens. I've had other burdens that I carry with big questions. We all have them. But we need to pursue the answers when we have those big questions. Middle schoolers aren't afraid to ask them. We need to not be afraid to ask them. When I was doing youth ministry um, as my sole job 15 years ago, I remember leading a group of high schoolers, about 10, 12 high schoolers in the basement of someone's house. A couple guests were there. After everybody went up to get the snacks, I was about to walk up. There was one high schooler still sitting down there. I'd never met him until that night. And uh, he's kind of, it was almost like a movie scene where he's sitting in the corner, should have had a toothpick sticking out of his mouth, so casual and laid back, right? Uh, and kind of too cool for school kind of scene. And he's like, that was a pretty cute talk you gave there. And I'm like, this is interesting. So we, we had a conversation about it. He's an atheist. His dad was an atheist. He's an atheist. And he said he was trying to pursue the truth. And it was interesting because in the conversation I could hear, it doesn't sound like you really are, though. You're here, but it doesn't sound like you really are. It sounds like he's living in a lot of presuppositions. And brothers, sisters, and friends, this is a live issue, the existence of God questions. But there's a, a world out there that actually is willing to hear and, and listen. Uh, George Barna from uh, Arizona Christian University now, not his own Barna organization anymore, uh, just this last year did some statistics that found that, and this is a, kind of astounding, 56% of people believe in the existence of Satan as a real being, compared to 51% believe in God. Isn't that interesting? 59, now there's more that believe in God, but that believe in God, that sort of that, as the broadly, the creator of the universe. 56% with, without real issue believe in Satan as a real being, and 51%. And of that, 20% believe a higher power may exist, but nobody knows for certain. But people are interested. People are open. Obviously, if they believe in Satan, they are open to something else. But it's not just a matter of faith. And it's not just a matter of fireworks in the sky or mass message to all of us. We've got a mass message, by the way, to all of us. Or shows from God that, to, that show us that he exists. We have plenty of evidence. Brothers and sisters, we need to be seekers of the living God 
consistently and constantly, continuing to add to that sufficient evidence list that we have. So that when a children's sermon comes up, we're all raising our hands saying, I've got a lot of evidence of God's existence before me. We need to be apologists for the good news, helping point others to the existence of God and Jesus Christ. Yeah, because of our testimony, because it goes deeper than that. It goes to the, the actual uh, objective facts and arguments that are out there that we can point to and say, let's walk down this path together. We need to help others seek and find a God that is knowable and wants to know each one of us. That's our job. Why doesn't God do something super obvious? He kind of did in a lot of us, right? We believe. Let's help others believe too. Let's pray. Lord, you exist. Many of us believe, help our unbelief. Some of us do carry the burden of, of having trouble believing that you exist. Lord, help us find the evidence, but more importantly, help us have the heart to follow, to follow the truth wherever it goes. Lord, some of us have a hard time articulating those points. We know we believe. We know there's good and sufficient evidence for the truth that you exist. But God, we have a hard time putting it together in our mind. Lord, send your spirit to help us put it together so that we can share that. And Lord, for all of us, help us have opportunity. There are so many people out there who are interested in, and just haven't acknowledged it, who believe, but they have a lot of presuppositions, God, that need to be kind of worked through just to get to your son, Jesus Christ. Help us be the people. Help us be the people who watch your kingdom expand and grow because you put before us those conversations and we fearlessly, with the power of your spirit, had those conversations and watched your spirit bring others around us to know your son, Jesus. They could experience salvation and experience the new heaven and the new earth and stand in your glory one day. That they can experience the healing that you will provide on that day. Lord, be with us. Help us experience in a multitude of ways your goodness today and this week. Amen.